Welcome back to the Express Yourself Black Man Podcast. My name is Kizzle or Kofi, and I'm a 23-year-old mental health advocate, public speaker, and founder of A Kizzle Brand, which is a project aimed at raising awareness for depression and helping people through difficult times. Studies show that on average, men lose 2.8 years of their life when they're under heavy stress. The point of this podcast is for me to gain those 2.8 years back. As a black man, society often tries to tell me what I can, can't do, or talk about which can often leave me feeling trapped. And so this podcast is my release. So in this episode, we're going to talk about my story. I'm going to take you guys through my childhood, my teenage years, college, post-college, and my transition into adulthood. And hopefully you guys get some insight on who I am and why I think the way I think and do the things that I do. So let's start with my childhood. I was born in Brooklyn and I moved to Queens when I was five. Uh, I always remember Brooklyn as this fun place when I was younger because we lived in an apartment complex and my grandmother lived on the first floor. We lived on the fourth floor, I believe. My grandmother lived on the first floor and we would go down there, visit my grandmother and my uncle would be in there and we'd be able to play games and do all these other fun things, you know, as a child. So I always remember Brooklyn as being this fun place. So then we moved to Queens. I remember visiting the house for the first time. We moved into a home and I remember going in there, I was five at the time, and I was like, why are we in this house? Like, whose house is this? It was dark. It wasn't like during the daytime. I didn't see anybody else that I didn't know. It was just my family and I. And so I was very confused as to why we had the keys to this new home or to this home, because at that time, I didn't know it was our house. I just remember us walking through it. We went to the kitchen. We went to the living room, all these different rooms, and I was just confused why we were in there. Then later on, I remember us moving. We had a, a Dodge Caravan at the time in Brooklyn, and we were putting all these things into our car, and my parents finally broke the news to us that we were moving out of the apartment to Queens. I still had no idea what that actually meant until I actually got to Queens, and I got a little bit older and realized, all right, all right this, is, this is our home, okay? This is where we're moving to. Like, all right, this makes sense. So, yeah, so we moved to Queens, and Queens was cool growing up. I remember I went to PS156, and I remember going to school for the first time. I didn't know anybody. I was in first grade. Everybody had already been in kindergarten together, so they had already made friends. And I was just this awkward kid that really didn't understand how to be social. And so it was really funny for me, or it was really uh, nerve-wracking for me, actually. It's funny now looking back at it, but it was nerve-wracking for me when I first got into school because I was like, I don't know anybody here. I really don't know anybody here. And at that time, of course, as a kid, you don't have social skills. So it was tough until I met, you know, some of my friends that are still I'm still friends with now. And, you know, then from there, it got a lot easier. But growing up in Queens, we struggled. We struggled a lot more than I realized at the time. I remember having to work hard for everything. I always needed to show my parents like grades before I could even get to have a conversation with them about getting something. And then even when I showed them grades, I wouldn't get that thing that I wanted until like a year or, or years later. And I didn't understand why. I thought my parents were just trying to punish me. I thought my parents were just trying to teach me something. But the underlying cause of that was we didn't have the money to finance the things that I wanted or, you know, finance the gifts. And I know that hurt my parents, but they were trying to put a roof over our head. They also wanted to get us out of Brooklyn. They just felt like that wasn't a, the right environment to raise kids in. And, and I agree. I completely understand. So that was my that was basically my childhood. You know, I moved from Brooklyn to Queens and in Queens we had this new home. I went to this new school, tried to make new friends, which I did, and we struggled a lot. I remember, you know, not really having 
the coolest clothes not ever having like around that time polo was 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 it polo and some jays would have fitted you were the flyest person in the school i remember not being able to have any of those things you know some of my friends had it or some of the cooler kids in school had it but i never had any of that stuff so i never grew up really like materialistic because parents couldn't afford the materialistic things so it was very interesting. You know, I, I was humbled at, a, at an early age. I couldn't be that person that, that got into school and everybody was attracted to them based on, you know, their materialistic clothing or items. I was that person that if I came to school and you were attracted to me as like an individual, you were attracted to me because of my personality and the way that I carried myself, not because of what I had on. So it was very interesting. And I was a good student. I was a good student mainly at that time because I felt like if I was a good student, I was going to get those things from my parents. And I did get some of the things that I wanted, but just not everything, right? And you know, no child ever gets every everything. So don't feel bad for me. Don't have any kind of pity for me or anything like that. It was a it was good that that happened because it instilled a certain level of work ethic in me. Another thing that happened when I was a child is uh, I had to help my dad out with his business that he was running. He was an entrepreneur basically because he didn't have a job. So he was an entrepreneur out of circumstance and not because he wanted to do it. So he sold African artifacts, paintings, African movies, things like that. And he would go to the flea market. I remember he'd go to the flea market every Sunday. I was around like maybe eight, nine, maybe 10 at the time. And my dad would wake me up Sunday morning, early, like 5 a.m. And I would go with him to the flea market to help him set up, set up a tent, set up all the tables, set up the artifacts on the tables and then help him to like lure people over to sell things to them. And that's how he made his money. And it taught me a lot about work ethic. It taught me a lot about waking up early and making sure that you're there on time and making sure that you set up things on time and that you're organized, making sure that you know how to talk to people and interact with people and bargain. Things like that was something that I learned from from my dad out of necessity because he didn't have a job and it also taught me a lot about just grinding and hustling so i went from being the not social kid to now i'm in this flea market and i wasn't really that social in the flea market but i was forced to be more social than i would have if i was just at that age just going to school and coming back home so from there i got better at being social i won't even lie i hated the flea market though at that age i hated i dreaded it a lot because I didn't want to have to wake up early on Sunday. I wanted to be like every other kid on Sunday, waking up, going to the park, riding your bike, playing games, whatever. I wanted to be a kid. And circumstance forced me to be a little bit older than I had to be at that age. So it was very interesting because I was taught responsibility at a younger age than most people. And that transitioned into my teenage years and the rest of my life. So my dad wouldn't only sell his carvings and paintings and artifacts at the flea market. He would sell them at any kind of festival that he could rent a booth at. And so it was very interesting. As a child, I was going with my dad to like Baltimore or Philly or New Jersey or different areas of New York, different parts of New York to help him sell some of the artifacts that he was getting straight from Africa. It was very interesting because I was learning a lot about how to run a business. I was learning a lot about how to be responsible at a young age. That transitioned into my teenage years because I, I helped my dad with his business up until he got a job, which was around the time that I went into high school. So I did this for the majority of my, my childhood. So then I went to high school and I remember applying to like six different schools. I wanted to get into Townsend Harris at the time. Townsend Harris was a really prestigious school in my eyes at the time. I remember praying so much about it. I was praying so much about it. I was reading the Bible. I had never even read the Bible that much at that age. I, I didn't really like 
church or you know religion at that age that much and i didn't have a really good spiritual relationship but i was reading the bible and i was praying i was asking god please lord let me get to townsend harris please lord i'll do anything i know i'll be good there and i didn't get into townsend harris and i remember being crushed and i, I stopped praying i stopped reading the bible because i was just like dang I, I prayed to god about this for so long and i didn't get it so i, I felt like praying to god it's not going to get you what you want so why why even pray which is the wrong mindset to have i know that now in hindsight but at the time, that's how I felt. I did get into George Washington High School, and that school was in Harlem. So I had a two-hour commute when I was around 13. I would take the Q5 bus to Jamaica Ave, and on Jamaica Ave, I would take the E to 42nd Street. And from 42nd Street, I would take the 3 all the way down to 191st Street, I believe. And then from there, I would do like a three-minute walk to the school. And I would have to get there earlier than when the school opened because they had scanning. It was one of those schools that had scanning. So... I was waking up around like five to try and get out that house at six so I could get to school at eight for class to start at nine. And I did that for about a month and a half or maybe two months. And my dad saw that it was taking a toll on me and he tried to pull some strings and got me into a different school in the middle of the semester, in the middle of the quarter. And I just didn't understand how he even did that. That's the kind of dad that he is. He's very resourceful. I don't know how he did it. He said he knew somebody that knew of a new school that was opening that needed students. And I got into that school and that school was called Cambria Heights Academy. And so I went to Cambria Heights Academy. I transitioned to Cambria Heights Academy after I got out of George Washington High School. And Cambria Heights Academy, man, that was one of the most fun schools that I've ever been in. So I went to Cambria Heights Academy for the majority of my freshman year. And I enjoyed it a lot. It was a school that was in a church and the parking lot was basically where we played basketball. But it was the most fun that I had, you know, in my teenage years, honestly. And I wouldn't take back that time at Cambridge Heights Academy for anything, man. Like, I really enjoyed that school a lot. I just remember just loving it. I just loved my time there. I loved the people there. I still go there and I still talk from time to time. And I try to, you know, catch up with some of the teachers there. I really did enjoy it. So yeah, I went to Cambria Heights Academy for my freshman year. And I remember talking to my parents and they were saying, you know, do you want to continue at Cambria Heights Academy? Because, you know, it's a new school. It doesn't have really that much of a name and you want to get into a good college. So if you continue here, you're jeopardizing basically your chances at getting into a, a, a good school, a good college. And I remember thinking like, dang, man, like I want to stay at this school, but I also want to get into a good college, so I may have to leave. And that was that was one of the toughest decisions that I had to make at that age was applying to other schools and realizing that I was going to leave this school that I felt like I really enjoyed to better myself. I'm glad that I did it. I'm glad that I did it because I ended up going into Thomas Edison and I studied computer repair, which I'll talk more about in a second. But at the end of the day, it did sting me. Like, I just felt like, dang, man, you're leaving your friends. You're leaving this really fun school to go to this bigger school when you could just make something here. Like they always used to call us pioneers because we were the first class. Right. So they called us the pioneers of the school. And I felt like I was building something there. And it kind of got stripped away because I had to go and do other things that were better for my future. But yeah, it was interesting. I enjoyed Cambria Heights a lot. We called it CHAF, Cambria Heights Academy. So then I went into Edison and I studied computer repair. And Edison was very, very interesting. It was different from Cambria Heights because it was a school that was actually in a school building. It was a real high school and it had like around, I think around like 400 kids. And so it was very interesting being in Edison where I came from Cambria Heights Academy that had like 30 kids or like 50 kids. And so I went straight into another school that was bigger, 400 kids. It had a track, track field. It had a soccer field and all these different things that I did not see at Cambria Heights. It had a, this gym that was inside and I did not see that at Cambria Heights. So going into Edison, I studied computer repair mainly because I remember hearing from 
my dad or somebody in my life that you should do what makes you happy. And I didn't understand what that meant at that age. I used to be on the computer a lot. So I was like, all right, well, I like being on the computer. So I'll just study computer repair. Not knowing that computer repair is different from being on a computer. I just felt like anything that had computer on it, like, all right, cool, I'll, I'll enjoy it. So I studied computer repair and I got really good at it. I got really good at understanding the different components of a computer, understanding what the computer does and how it functions, how to build a computer, how to make a computer, things like that I was really good at. And I got good enough to the point where I was put on this team or this squad called Mouse Squad. That's what they called it in the school. And Mouse Squad was basically a team of students that would go around and help teachers with their computer problems or help faculty with their computer problems or technology problems. And the whole goal of being on Mouse Squad was at some point you would be good enough to get on Geek Squad, which is part of Best Buy. Best Buy has their own computer repair stuff that they call Geek Squad. So that's where they got Mouse Squad from. That's where Thomas Edison got Mouse Squad from. So I did computer repair for my four years in Edison, and it was really fun for me. When I went to Edison, I ventured out a little bit more than I, than I would have if I stayed at Cambridge Heights Academy. When I went to Edison, I, I tried out for the junior varsity basketball team and I got on the team. And I remember when I got on the team, one of my friends that I knew from a 156 in Queens, they had told me like, yo, there's this girl that, that thinks you're cute. You know, she, you know, she wants to talk to you, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, cool, cool, cool. What's up? So they told me her name and I remember pulling up on her and I was just like, yo, like, what's up? You know, so-and-so told me that you think, you know, I'm cute, blah, blah, yada, yada, yada. And from there, like, we, we really just hit it off and we started talking on Facebook because around that time, Facebook was really prominent. Or I was on Facebook a lot more than I am now. And we talk on Facebook all the time. I would talk on Facebook with her on my PS3, man. Like, I didn't even really have, like, a phone at the time. Like, it would either be my PS3 or, like, my iPod. And we would talk all the time. We talk all the time. And eventually that developed into a relationship. And, you know, we kind of fell in love with each other. Like, we really fell in love with each other. So, Edison, I really met the love of my life. And I studied computer repair up until I graduated. We were both thinking about, okay, what school do we want to go to? What school do we want to go to? So, we would, we would talk about schools, like, what college college do we want to go to? We would talk about college a lot. And I remember one day, I was in the basement with her. And I was like, okay, you know, like, what? so what, what colleges are you thinking about going to? She's like, yeah, well, I applied to Delaware State University. I'm like, Delaware State University? Where is that at? Like, what, what state is that? Like, we're, we're in, I'm thinking this in New York somewhere. Not knowing Delaware State, like, that's isn't the state of Delaware. Like, come on, bro. So she told me, like, yeah, it's in Delaware. I was like, Delaware? Like, where is Delaware? I still didn't know what Delaware was, right? She's like, Delaware is, like, a state. It's not It's not New York. I'm like, oh, so you're moving, basically. Um, And from right then and there, I was like, nah, no way. So I applied to Delaware State, like, the next day. And I applied for computer science because that's what I was interested in doing. I had done the computer repair thing enough. And I realized, like, at that age, it was very interesting. I made the realization that the world was shifting to computer science. Without really even knowing how important that decision was, I made that decision. Like, yeah. I want to study computer science. And people were like, whoa, computer science is tough, man. Like, I was like, yeah, you know, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. I was scared. I was very nervous, but I felt like I could do it. So anyways, I applied to Delaware State University because the girl that I was dating at the time that I was so in love with was going to Delaware State University. So, you know, by the grace of God, I got in and I told my parents like, yeah, I'm not staying in New York. I'm going to Delaware State University with, with this girl that, you know, I'm in love with. And my parents were, they... I'm surprised that they, well, they respected me and they 
they knew I was responsible enough to make my own decisions and they allowed me that space to make that decision. Whether it was a right or wrong decision for me, they allowed me to make that decision for myself and then, you know, deal with the consequences of it later. And I respect my parents for that a lot because not many parents would do that. So shout out to them for that. And so I went to Delaware State University with this girl and the relationship started to deteriorate. And the reason why the relationship started to deteriorate is because I was so insecure at the time. I had not done any healing. I didn't know what my attachment style was. I didn't even know that I was insecure, but it was manifesting in my relationship in so many different ways. And I was so controlling, man. Like I was so controlling to the point where she felt like I I know she felt like she was she was suffocating. My insecurities led me to, you know, engage in protest behaviors. If you guys don't know what protest behaviors are, if you have an anxious, insecure, preoccupied attachment style, please look up protest behaviors because it would explain a lot of the arguments and the things that you do in your relationship. So I would engage in protest behaviors to seek reassurance. So like, you know, we would get into arguments. The main reason why we were arguing is because I felt unsure about where we were in the relationship. So that's what that's a prime example of what a protest behavior is. Man, so my relationship was failing, but academically I was striving. And in high school, I didn't really I didn't really do that well academically. I mean, I did well. I did well. I had like an 85, 88 average, so I won't say that. I did well. But I remember specifically in math, trigonometry, man, I was I was flunking trigonometry, man. I was failing trigonometry left and right. I had like a 65. I ended up passing the class with a 65, but I remember every test, I dreaded it. Not because I didn't study, not because I didn't try. I just did not get the material. But in college, man, like trig, algebra, calculus, all of these different math classes, I was just, I was breezing through it. I had a different level of motivation, I guess, or a different level of determination because I felt like people were telling me like, yeah, you can't do computer science. And so in my head, it was like, nah, I'm going to show you I could do it. So every semester, except for one, I had a 4.0. And I went in there with that goal, like, yo, I'm going to graduate with a 4.0. I told myself I'm going to get all A's every semester. The only semester I didn't get all A's was my first semester. And we're not even going to talk about what class that was because I'm not even going to do it. I'm not even going to do it. But yeah, so I got, you know, I, I was really good in, in college. I was really good at computer science. And so it was, it was, it didn't come easy for me. It's just that I worked hard, man. Like I worked hard. And a lot of that working hard was instilled in me from my childhood. Like, remember what I talked about? I had to work for everything. You know what I'm saying? Like I had to work for everything that I was given as a child. And even then, sometimes I wouldn't get the result that I wanted. And I had to work with my dad at the flea market and all these different markets. So I was used to working hard. I was used to responsibility. So when I got into college, I was like, oh, okay, this is hard. This is tough, but it's nothing I've never seen before. It's nothing I've never seen before. And so, I, you know, I always, you know, I always try to thank my dad for that. Even though I know it burned him, you know, taking, taking me as a child to go with him to the flea market and all these different places out of necessity. It taught me a lot about being a responsible, accountable adult. So when I got into college, like studying on my own and going to classes on my own and making sure that I was managing my time correctly. I was doing those things because they were already instilled in me from when I was a child. So like I said, my relationship was failing and we ended up breaking up sophomore year. And for me, like my world shattered because 
I put this girl at the center of my world. She was basically like, I was like planning my whole life around her at that age. I was like 18. I remember all my friends was like, yo, bro, you are like in love. Like you're whipped. Like you're whipped. I remember being 18 telling my parents like, yo, this is the girl I'm marrying. I want to get married to her soon. Like now, like how do I do it? And my parents had to sit me down like, yo, do you have money? Do you have this? Do you have that? It probably is not going to happen anytime soon. And I remember being like, yo, y'all are, y'all are doubting me. Y'all are doubting me. And I didn't like that. So yeah, my relationship, my relationship failed. We broke up sophomore year. And like I said, my world shattered. I felt like I didn't know who I was because I devoted so much time and effort and so much of myself in that relationship. Remember, we got together basically sophomore year of high school. So this was the only person I knew at that point, like that really knew me, knew me. And it was tough after that because I didn't have that person that was like my confidant. I didn't have that person anymore. I didn't have that person I could really lean on when things got tough because it ended and it ended badly. It ended badly. So I had to learn how to move forward in life without this big piece of myself. And it was tough. So I went into this like period of depression because I was just so sad about it all. I was so sad about not being with this girl, man. I was so sad. I was so sad. I was so sad, man. And I'm I'm saying I was so sad multiple times because I was really like going through it. I was going through it, man. Like now I'm laughing. I'm laughing thinking about it because it's like, dang, like I would really go to school. I would go to school and it would just be normal Kofi like laughing at people's jokes and things like that and being social and talking to people and stuff. But when I got home, man, I was so sad, man. I would just lay, I would just sit on the on the floor and cry. I would sit on the floor and cry, man. Like, jeez. I'm just thinking back to it now. Like, yo, you were really sad, bro. Like, you were really sad and you got out of that. And I'm proud of myself, man. So like I said, I was I was so sad. I reconnected with one of my friends, Auntie, and I would talk to Auntie for hours about what was going on, how I felt. I would send her like these 10 minute voice notes about my feelings. I basically use Auntie as my therapist, which I do not recommend. Do not do that because it puts a big burden on your friends. And Auntie carried it gracefully, but I know it burdened her at the end of the day. By the grace of God, man, I was able to get out of that, you know, that that period of my life. And the real reason why I was able to get through it all is because I devoted so much time into figuring out who I was. I explored a lot. I explored a lot. And what I mean by exploring is I started doing things that I felt like I could never do. So, like, I remember having conversations with the girl that I was with. I would tell her, like, yo, I don't feel like I'm creative. I don't feel like I can, like, make art or, like, do things in Photoshop or, like, draw or any of these things. And... I felt like kind of like I had this like hole because I felt like I was really good at school, but I wasn't creative. Like there's people that could do art and I was just like, dang, man, like I wish I could do that. And so when I when we broke up, I just devoted time into learning Photoshop. And I remember I would be in school. I'll be in class and I would be in Photoshop, like just putting a bunch of filters on a photo or something. And people would be looking at me like, yo, what is this guy doing or laughing or whatever? And I was like, all right, cool, 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 cool. Because I'm learning right now. So once I learn it, like, I'm going to be lit. And y'all going to see. Y'all going to see. People would be laughing. So I was like, all right, cool. And I use that as motivation. A lot of times when people doubt me, man, like, that drives me so much more, man. Like, when people doubt me, I am really driven by that. I'm driven by people's, like, I'm driven by people's doubt. 
So I devoted more time into Photoshop. I would go on YouTube, look at YouTube videos about things that I wanted to do. And eventually I got really good at it. I got really good at it. I started making logos. I started making a lot of these different graphics. And what I would do is I would put the moon in graphics because I started with the moon. I started with a picture of the moon and I, I put a bunch of filters on it to make it look a little bit different. And then I would take that filtered moon and I would try to put it into pictures of real people and try to make it look realistic. And I got good at what I was doing. I got good to the point where people saw it and they're like, oh, this looks nice. That gave me more confidence. And around that time, I started feeling better about myself because I was devoting time into something that was actually mine, that was not built based off of the relationship that I was, I was previously in. It was basically something that I did myself. And so I felt confident, like, oh, okay, you can do this life thing yourself. And I think that's the reason why I was really depressed. I felt like I, felt like I couldn't live my life by myself. And that's part of my attachment style, the anxious, insecure, preoccupied attachment style. You feel like you need to be with somebody to live. Very interesting how that played into like my depression and how I got out of it was learning how to live by myself. So that confidence led me to start a project called a Kizzle brand. And Kizzle is my nickname, which was given to me by the friend that helped me through everything I was going through. I remember one day I was just texting her and she was like, Co-Kizzle which is a spinoff of my name, Kofi. And I just it just stuck. So she would just call me Co-Kizzle, and eventually I shortened it to just Kizzle. And I started a project called A Kizzle Brand. And A Kizzle Brand is a project that I started aimed at raising awareness for depression and helping people through difficult times. Because once I got through what I was going through, I realized like, yo, there are other people that are going through the same exact thing that I'm going through, if not worse. We need to talk about this. Why is nobody talking about this? Why is this a taboo topic? when there's so many people that are struggling with depression, struggling with their mental health. So me going through what I went through in college made me feel like I had this responsibility to talk about it. And so I started doing public speaking. And I never was the person that thought I was going to be doing public speaking. Never, never. Because I just wasn't that person that wanted to talk to people like that. I like I enjoy making people laugh and like having a good time with people, but it has to be a certain setting. It has to be a certain scenario. So public speaking kind of takes away all of the control that I would have over these settings. Normally, if you're doing public speaking, you're doing it in like somebody's auditorium or some stage. You don't really have control over. You get up there and you speak. And so for me, that was very nerve wracking. I didn't really have control over my environment. And then on top of that, I'm talking to people that I don't know. But I realized, hey, if you want to help people, you have to get over this fear or this uncomfortability with public speaking. And so I did. And I started talking. I started talking at schools and I started talking at organizations and started talking at all these different events because I wanted to raise awareness for what it was that I was doing and what it was that I went through because I know other people could relate. I know other people could relate. I invested a lot of time into AKB, a Kizzle brand, when I was in college and I learned, I learned how to make my own logos. I learned how to make my own clothes. I learned how to make my own website. All of that stuff I learned by myself by devoting time into it. Google and YouTube are your best friends. If you are an entrepreneur or you're just someone that's trying to learn something and you feel like you can't learn it, Google and YouTube are your best friends. Google, YouTube, and time. Take your time. Take your time, man. There are so many things that I feel like, oh, man, I'll never be able to do this. I'll never be able to do this. There's no way. And I figured it out. I'm going to add a fourth one in there. Google, YouTube, time, and persistence. You have to have those four things if you want to learn something new. Those four things that will take you farther than, than anything else.
senior year was interesting for me because I was still making decisions based on my attachment style without really knowing it. So, yes, I learned how to live by myself, but because it was out of necessity, eventually I started feeling like I needed to be with somebody. And so senior year, I got into another relationship right after I tried to get back into a relationship with my ex from high school. My ex from high school and I, we tried to get into a relationship. It didn't really work. And then two to three weeks later, I got into another relationship with this girl that I felt like was, okay, she was cool enough for me to chill with. So, okay, why not? Why not do it? And I didn't really know enough about her to make that decision. But again, I'm operating out of my attachment style and not out of logic. My attachment style was driving these decisions because I didn't want to be alone. I wanted to be in a relationship where I felt like I was more secure and validated. I got into another relationship. I jumped into a relationship right in right at the end of senior year, basically. I thought everything was cool, but it wasn't because I didn't do the necessary work to understand who it was that I was getting into a relationship with. We graduate and I'm in this new relationship with this new girl. And I have to move to Massachusetts and she's moving to Arizona. So we both decided like, hey, do we want to continue this or not? And we both decided like, yeah, we want to continue it. We mess with each other. Let's do it. So I moved to Massachusetts to work for the Department of Defense. And I hated Massachusetts. I'll never go back. I will never go back. That time that I worked in, I'll, I'll call it MA from now on because I don't feel like saying the whole thing. That time that I worked in MA was the worst. I did not see black people. I did not see black people. I remember call, telling my friends, I would call them and tell them like, yo, I'm not seeing black people, bro. I'm not seeing black people. I'm going into stores and I'm the only black person in there. And not only that, I'm, most of the times I'm the, the youngest person in there. I definitely was the youngest person at work. It was so annoying for me, man, because I didn't feel like I could be myself. So I, I hated Massachusetts for that. On top of that, I didn't like the accent. <laughs> I didn't like their accents, man. Like, why do y'all talk like that in Massachusetts? Why? Why? <laughs> it's like a it's like a bootleg New York. Like, I really thought New Jersey was a bootleg New York, but Massachusetts really takes the cake. If you ever go to Massachusetts, you understand. And Boston is like the... All right, you know, I'm not going to keep on bashing Massachusetts. I'm not going to do that. So I was in this relationship with this girl. And she's in Arizona, I'm in Massachusetts, and we're doing a long-distance thing. And it was so draining for me because, first of all, I'm starting a new job. I'm in a new area. And I have a new girlfriend that's long-distance. There was, there was too many different variables. And so I gave up pieces of myself to make the relationship work. Again, this is because of my attachment style. I gave up so many pieces of myself to make the relationship work. I don't really like being on FaceTime. Now, I know a lot of you guys are going to say, well... You know, if you're doing a long-distance relationship, you need to be on FaceTime more because, you know, you need to see your partner. I understand. But the amount of time that we were on FaceTime, my schedule was so... I didn't even know what my schedule was like. I'm a person that's very routine, schedule-based. And so not knowing when I was going to receive a call from this girl made me uneasy. But I agreed to it because it was something that she wanted to do. Anytime we talked about it, she would get upset. So in order to not have to deal with that i gave up my schedule to her basically because in her eyes hey your job isn't that stressful which i told her it wasn't that stressful because i didn't really do that much at work but at the end of the day a job is a job if you work a nine to five you know it's draining regardless of what you do you have to be present at a location it's going to drain you 
mentally, but she didn't understand that concept. So I would get out of work and if I didn't answer her call or call her back, she would get mad. And for me, that was draining because I didn't know what what time she would call me. Sometimes her class would end at four, which is my seven, or sometimes her class would end at one, which is my four. I didn't know what time she would call. And if she called and I didn't answer and I didn't call her back, she would get upset. And so that led to a lot of like conversations about FaceTime and how we communicate and all these different arguments. And I'm just trying to make it work because, again, I'm being driven by my attachment style. Not to mention, I'm a guy that wants to have kids that wants to get married. This girl had told me straight up from jump, I don't want to have kids. I don't want to get married. In my head, I registered that as I don't want to have kids. I don't want to get married yet. I added a yet to that because of my attachment style. I feel like, yo, you know what? She bugging. Every girl wants to have kids. Every girl wants to get married. I didn't understand that that was a boundary for her. And the reason why I didn't understand that, that was a boundary is because I wasn't good at setting my own boundaries. And I didn't understand that other people could have boundaries. And I didn't understand that certain relationships just aren't meant to work out because you guys are two different people. I felt like, oh, she was cool. Yeah, let's do it. Because of my attachment style. It's important to learn your attachment style. It's very important because my attachment style basically led me to be in a long distance relationship for longer than I needed to be in it. It led me to pursue a long distance relationship when I shouldn't even have been pursuing that in the first place. All the while, while I'm in Massachusetts, I'm still heavily invested in AKB. I'm still public speaking. And at that time, I was doing it at Boys and Girls Club. So that was like basically my biggest organization ever doing like public speaking or AKB events for. So it was really cool because I felt like, wow, I started, I basically started in like a, this small room with like three to five kids in, in Delaware. And then I went to Massachusetts and I was doing it for like 20 kids every Friday at Boys and Girls Club after work. So that was a big moment for me because I never felt like anybody would ever really take me that seriously when it came to public speaking. Like I knew I wanted to do public speaking. I knew I wanted to impact people in a positive way, but I didn't feel like I could get to the point where I could pitch ideas to Boys and Girls Club and that they would give me space to talk to kids about things that I was passionate about. So it was a big moment for me. It was a big confidence builder. And around that time, I was under heavy stress, mainly because I had just started grad school. By the grace of God, I was accepted into Georgia Tech, their online master's of computer science program. And I was also trying to get a new job so I can move out of MA because I hated MA, like I told you guys. So I wasn't devoting that much time into the relationship, understandably so, because I was trying to work on myself. And then the pandemic happened. And right around the middle of the pandemic, I found out that my girlfriend cheated on me. And so for me, I was just like, what the? Mm. I was just like, what the fuck, man? What the fuck? Because I'm literally trying to work on myself so that I can eventually be in a position at some point in time where I could provide for both of us. And you're so selfish that you're going to cheat on me during this time. And I was so mad, man. Like, I was mad. I was so mad. I was so mad. I was saying things I never heard myself say. Like, I'm going to punch her in the face and all these other crazy things, man. But this is just me being transparent with you guys. I was so angry. I was so angry. 
I went through the, I really went through the stages of grief. Like at first it was denial. Like, yo, I can't believe she cheated on me. Like she cheated on me. She cheated on me. Like, bro, she cheated on me. Wow. She's crazy. Then it was anger. Like, yo, she cheated on me. Are you kidding me, son? After everything that I was doing, trying to show her that I was interested, all these different things I was doing, she cheated, bro. She cheated. Like, are you kidding me, bro? I was so tight, man. I was so tight. I was so tight. I was so tight. And then eventually God revealed to me why it happened. Yo, this is the biggest blessing, man. Like months before that, months before that, I was praying a lot to God just about school. I was praying to God about my, you know, me finding a new job. And I was also praying to God about my relationship because I wasn't sure if it was the relationship I needed to be in. And so I was asking God, I would say, I would say to God, I would say, God, please help me to make a decision about what I'm doing. Give me discernment to make the right decision, to understand the right decision, to know what's right from wrong. Help me to identify what it is that I need to do moving forward with my relationship. And I said, if it is of your will, then let it happen. But if it is not of your will, then do not let it happen. I remember I would say that. And months later, she cheated on me. Right after she cheated on me, I got a new job. It was the biggest blessing that ever happened because with this new job came an increase in salary. Now I got rid of my financial, one of my financial burdens, which is being in a relationship. Any guy knows that when you're in a relationship, especially when you have when you're providing mostly because the partner that you're with doesn't really have it financially, it's a burden. It's a bill. So that was one of the biggest blessings. It was one of the biggest blessings because I got rid of this person that was so selfish that they couldn't even hold me down when I was going through what I was going through to try and get a better, you know, try and get in a better position for, for both of us. But with that, even though I knew it was a blessing, there was still anger. So I had to go find a therapist, man. I had to find a therapist. I had wanted to go to a therapist from before then to deal with some things that I was going through in my personal life. But once that happened, I was like, yeah, nah, man, it's time to find a therapist, man. Like, stop putting it off. I went on Psychology Today. Shout out to Kamiko that put me on Psychology Today. And I put in my zip code and I found therapists in my area. And I got hooked up with Christina Eagle. From there, it's just been smooth sailing, man. I won't say smooth sailing. That's that's. That's a lie because then that's putting off the wrong image about what therapy is. It's not like you just hop into therapy and it's just smooth. It's not. Um, you have to have uncomfortable conversations and you, you learn uncomfortable truths. But what I mean by smooth sailing is that I've learned so much about myself, man. Like I've learned so much about myself and how to handle scenarios and situations and how I've been handling scenarios and situations wrong. My life is so much different now. It's so much better now. And not, not even really because I have more, but just because I know how to handle what I'm being thrown, if that makes sense. Another effect of me being cheated on and me breaking up with this girl was it just led me to be more vocal about my viewpoints on what society tells black men they should be doing. Because I realized, like, yo, it doesn't even matter. Like, what does it matter what anybody thinks of me? Why, do, why am I trying to be like this great, perfect guy for everybody to understand and see? Just be yourself. And so I started talking about things that would bother me, about things that women were doing that, that would bother me, things that guys that were doing that would bother me, like things that society in general was doing that would bother me. People started telling me, like, yo, you should start a podcast, bro. You should start a podcast. You should start a podcast. And I was like, man, I don't want to start a podcast. Because if I start a podcast, then I got to dedicate time. 
into doing stuff. I got to put money into doing stuff and all these different things. But eventually I just realized like, yo, I can't keep going on IG and posting 35 different 15 second clips on my story ranting about topics. Just put it in one audio clip. The best way to do that is with a podcast. So I started a podcast. And how did I start the podcast? Like I told y'all with AKB, I sell. Well, I didn't tell y'all this, but I told y'all I, you know, I learned graphic design because I was devoting time into myself after I broke up with my girlfriend from high school. I started putting all these designs I was making. I started putting designs on T-shirts and I would sell T-shirts through Teespring and I would get like maybe like eight dollars per shirt. I would save the money. I would never spend it. I wouldn't spend it. I saved it. I saved it. I saved it. Eventually, I made enough money that I knew I could do something with the money. And I told myself, I'm not spending this money unless it's for something that's productive AKB related. And so when I thought about the podcast, I was like, hmm, I do have this money saved up. Let's just buy the equipment for the podcast and start the podcast. So anybody that's bought a shirt, anybody that's bought anything AKB related, you paid for the podcast setup. I didn't spend any money of mine, like any salary, any of my salary for this. This is really straight off of AKB profits. And it's crazy because it all comes full circle, man. Like it all comes full circle. It's so crazy. It's so crazy. And so I know I talked a lot about the breakup in my past relationship, but it wasn't all bad times. I definitely learned a lot from her. And I hope she's doing great. You know, I hope she's doing well. There's no bad blood or bad feelings. I don't have, I don't harbor any negativity towards her for what happened. You know, I fully forgive her for everything that happened. And I hope she's doing well. Anytime somebody asks me about how I feel, I always say the same thing. I hope she's doing well. You know, I hope she prospers and does everything that it is that she wants to do. It's just that I just don't want her in my circle. But it's all love. I'm in such a great space right now, man. I'm happy mainly because I'm just doing me. So I ended on a high note. And if you listen to this whole thing, man, I appreciate you. I really do. I really do, man. I hope you learned something. That's it for this episode. If you like what you heard or you feel like it can help somebody, please share and subscribe. As always, we're going to leave you off with a song or a snippet from a video that we found interesting. So here's Flowers Die, Memories Don't by Mel Doro. And shout out Mel Doro, man. I appreciate you, bro. I love what you're doing, man. For real. Keep it up. Check it. No, they got to feel me on this. It's a must. They got to feel me on this. Know that. I remember all that shit that people said to me I remember pockets empty, I got curved plenty When I was walking through the valley and nobody was in sight Thank God my tunnel vision was at 2020 worth the penny Now I just stay on my grind, make sure my people straight Always thinking out the box, my niggas still in section They create the jobs and find a way so they could beat the odds Cause all they glamorize is smoking weed and foreign cars No homicides, I wanna buy the blocks, we gentrified it And teach the youth about saving and being business minded Fathers dying or in prison, so where we go for guidance And if they are around, it's awkward silence I know they laugh behind your back, but they come with this shit 
Some niggas gon' say they love you, but it never exists That's why it's best to keep that shorty that you hustling with Them groupies be trying to chew you when you bubbling quick The truth is televised, they only love you when you crucified They gave my nigga Bari two to five, he coming home in three I'm hard to reach, gotta pay attention cause I hardly speak I'm from the gutter, nigga slice your cheek and set what's on your feet That's real life, know you feel like I'm never picking choosing My spirit man Samusa, Marcus Garvey, Martin Luther, hallelujah Not a Christian, but I believe in God, they shooting down that bullet Lucky if we see the future My flowers die, but my memories won't Fill the lines, I give you something to quote Right, this for my brothers doing time Got felonies on they records See the system is designed You never could vote Just know that time will teach you I'd rather stack than buy some Gucci sneakers We all make mistakes for thinking that the grass is greener And that's the misconception A lot of times a nigga face depression Mood was melancholy through my adolescence But I'm still here Value every second I ain't dead up in no wheelchair Thankful for my blessings Tell my brothers that I love them I don't use it as a weapon It's that soul food They microwave they crap for 90 seconds Know that Flowers die, but my memories won't Fill the lines, I give you something to quote Check it, watch the relations with your parents Especially if it's damaged Cause that foreshadows how you treat that lady Or that man in your life Gotta give you something they can feel on this No, they feel me on this That's for real No rub No that Flowers die, but my memories won't That flowers die, but my memories don't Go ahead, this on the positive, bro Yeah.